Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Pros Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't offer any knowledge content related benefits to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more money than we need, we'll be donating it to a good causes and we'll keep you in the loop. We've also started a new mini series focused on peripheral stuff for our Patreon folks that will be tied around some subject areas correlated to core content of this podcast. So we'll be talking about things from Cottage Core and Joel Salatin to radioactive pigs and lost indigenous crops and much, much more. If that sounds interesting to you, for $2, you'll get some episodes like that, and we'll be able to support this podcast for you guys. Uh, here's a quick taste of it. One of the things I noted, or I kept seeing come up was that the Iroquois uh, farmers in the 17th and 18th century produced up to five times more grain per acre than the wheat farmers in Europe. So there's two things that they kind of based this on or why this was happening. The first is the absence of plows in the Western Hemisphere, uh, which allowed for, for a higher yield potential than wheat because obviously it's better for the soil. The second is that corn has a higher yield potential than wheat because it's a C4 synthetic, uh, photosynthetic grass. So if you remember from the soils episode and the pasture episode, I think it was the pasture episode, we talked about the differences between C3 and C4 grasses. C3 are cooler season grasses, C4 are warmer season grasses. Hopefully you enjoyed that, and if so, head on over to the Patreon, and for $2, you can get access to all of it. We'll be likely adding to it once a week, so if you enjoy it, it breaks down to $0.50 cents a Patreon episode a month, not including the increasing backlog of content, while also getting the main show that you're listening to right now for free. Not a bad deal, right? So, clearly, we do enjoy making this content, and for our traditional episodes, there's not an insignificant amount of work that goes into each episode as evidenced by the sources listed in each episode. So any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. This is our 20th episode, and based on a 20 hours a week into each episode and researching, writing, recording, and editing, we're into the show, not including the Patreon content, over 400 hours. So yeah, we've put some time into this project, plus the cost of hosting and equipment. So if you can give us some support, we do fully appreciate it. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly useful in helping us both get ranked higher in algorithms used by iTunes, meaning more listeners, which also gives us the opportunity to start drawing in folks for interviews, which we would both love to do and I think you guys would benefit from as well. We actually have a guest coming up in a few episodes, so we're very excited about that. We'll be chatting about that probably in the next episode. We've also been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you guys do by giving us reviews and telling other folks about us, and it's pretty awesome. We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives us hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical guidelines that we find interesting. And, of course, memes. 
And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of this miniseries, at the very least, and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. The past few episodes have been focused on drawing from foundational anarchist theory and then applying it to the real world and how it works in practice. Last episode, we discussed Murray Bookchin's post-scarcity anarchism, In this episode, we're going to follow his vision as it has been filtered through both Abdullah Ajalan and the unique historical conditions in Rojava that has allowed something of an anarchist society to take hold in the midst of what is considered to be one of the most tumultuous parts of the most hostile regions of the world. In Make Rojava Green Again, the primary text we refer to in this dialogue, we look at the framework that the internationalist commune of Rojava has put in place to build a better, more ecologically sound world. If you're not familiar with the history of Rojava, it's, well, complicated. There's a lot of good resources out there. Robert Evans has done some of the finest work on the subject, and The Last Born in the Wilderness has a few episodes on Rojava that are worth tuning into. There's also a whole bunch of books out there, and they all cover different parts of it and the histories, and it really depends on how deep you want to go and how far back you want to go. In the most absolute simplest terms, the region of Rojava stretches along the Turkish-Syrian border to Iraq in a long, almost crescent-like shape. Both Turkey and Syria try to take claim for the region's most fertile soils, and ISIS springs an attack at the region both because it is viewed as a shrine to anti-Islam theocracy. Rojava is the region's punching bag, essentially, and various proxy wars flow through its pernicious existence. While much of the region is desert, parts are considered humid, near-tropical, which has traditionally been a prime agricultural sector worth fighting for. Once containing vast, dense forests, most of them have been cleared for wheat and olive monocrops. The rivers that feed this region stem from Turkey, who are actively damming up the rivers in a move to smoke out the autonomous zone, while also actively inviting pests into the region to destroy the fields of Rojava. Further, Rojava sits upon massive oil reserves and produces 5% of all the Middle East's oil, and the figure has the potential to grow exponentially in the hands of other countries. And none of this even touches the very, very long and complex relationship of the various acronyms you'll hear thrown around in regards to the political forces that have made Rojava a reality, the forces that look to Abdullah Ajalan as their de facto leader as he sits in solitary confinement on a small island in the Sea of Marmara. Rojava's response to these massive challenges, overcoming 20 years of massive pesticide use, including pesticides that were banned everywhere else and then dumped in the region because there was no regulation, was to develop the Agricultural Protection Committee, which focuses on sustainable farming methods through diversification and intense water management. So that's kind of the framework of the conditions of Rojava. And obviously, there's so many more things we could talk about in terms of the United States' relationship, how far back you want to go in history. And the point is that the the history there is super complex. And there you could do a whole podcast just on the history of Rojava in the region. And that it's not going to benefit our conversation too much to do that deep dive. The goal is that you understand that pretty much everyone around them hates them and everyone wants a piece of what they have because they have this fertile piece of soil that sits on a bunch of oil that's on the border of three different countries that are that don't like each other. That's fed by rivers. That's fed it's, by it's rivers. It's got everything you need. 
Yeah, it, I mean, this this whole region is the original Fertile Crescent. So yeah, the, most of the soil, as everyone knows, in the Middle East has been turned to has been desertified because of poor farming practices, and the the pockets that still exist of agricultural land are few and far between, and they're sitting on one, and they refuse to exist under an Islamic state. They refuse to answer to these different countries that want to control the region and dictate what they can and can't do. So previously, before Rojava was an an autonomous zone, people were actually not allowed, legally speaking, to grow their own food. So, And that was something that had existed for 20 years. So trying to change those mentalities of what it meant to, I guess, have that, I guess, to give these people the ability to make those types of decisions on their own without having to answer to an authority has been a challenge. And This book, uh, Make Rojava Green Again, highlights all of the different challenges that the region is trying to tackle while also bringing in this ecological understanding, this framework where ecology is centered in the conversation about economy. And it's not as simple as we have these things that we can just do them. Their goal is to figure out how to do these things and what that transition process looks like. Right. And it's going to be difficult to do because... They're being attacked literally on three sides, and they're also trying to build from within at the same time. And the thing that's really interesting is it's not just like you've got a whole bunch of anarchists that are like, okay, let's do this thing. It's like a whole bunch of people that lived in that region or emigrated to that region because it seemed safer than where they were. Um, People that have historically been marginalized came together, and even if they came with uh, a lot of baggage about like what society is, the role of men, the role of women, and all these different things. Part of the project has been to re-educate those people and have authority over their life and the decisions that they want to make. So there's like so many. There's a multi-pronged effort to educate people that are coming there to defend the area that they're in and to refocus their economy around being sustainable. So it's like, and it's not even like they're fighting one war. They're fighting um, against these different countries that are trying to get involved in what they're doing or stopping what they're doing, all for different reasons. Yeah. So let's let's dive in. It sounds like a lot to chew on. Yeah. So we talked about Bookchin last week, and his ideas were read by Abdullah Ajalan while he was sitting in this cell. And I'm not going to go into his history because it's very complicated and despite the fact that his most recent work has been really fantastic. He also has a very bloody and questionable past that he has accepted and admitted that was a mistake, um, which is also important, but that doesn't erase what you've done. Um, so he he takes this idea that Bookchin has of uh, what he calls democratic confederalism, and that's what Rojava has been based upon. And it's more than just ecology and radical democracy as it is essentially a pillar for women's liberation. And this goes back to Bookchin's conversation about the role of patriarchy. Solving the ecological and social crisis, it's impossible to do without uh, liberating women from their role as secondary. And to use the words of Ajalon, a society can't be free unless the women are free. Again, this comes back to this idea of where does man's dominance originally stem from, and it stems from the domination of women. What's really interesting is you've got this person that has these followers who have followed him for decades, and he's become this figurehead. Uh, again, I'm 
super oversimplifying, but because of his power as an individual, he's able to articulate in a way that is meaningful that this is a primary cause for making change, making meaningful change. He writes that a policy that promises salvation from the present crisis can only lead to a proper social system if it is ecological. In this process, we find the interweaving of man's dominion over man with man's dominion over nature, moving from a free and ecological coexistence in natural society with mutual respect, solidarity, and care towards a society based on hierarchies, classes, and domination, people alienated themselves not only from each other, but also from nature. This was the beginning of our downfall, because the evolving class society developed in clear contradiction to nature. The idea of a living, animated, colorful, and productive nature gave way to one of a vindictive and mean-spirited nature something to compete with. I think this frames up a lot of the conversations we've had about the conditions that capitalism has led to with regards to the natural world and our place within the natural world. It examines how these relationships are shaped from different perspectives spanning classic scientific disciplines and including anthropology, philosophy, history, archaeology, and social theory. It is not a purely descriptive theory. Its crucial project is how the critical human nature relationship can be reimagined and transformed. This kind of frames up a lot of the conversation we've already had about Bookchin and his understanding of ecology and humanity's place in it. And part of what Ajalon focuses on is this idea of first nature versus a second nature. And we assign this first nature sense with um, essentially a, a pre-human nature or a anti I guess, anti-humanity nature. I, I don't even know if that's really the right term. But the, the basic understanding of this first nature is that it is, it's that complex system. It's that continuous development towards greater complexity and differentiation that allows for more energy to be stored and developed in a system to support more and more complex species. Second nature is where human beings are also involved who are self-conscious and aware and able to intervene in the natural world. And much like Bookchin, he argues that we must see ourselves as being integrated with nature and viewing nature as a realm of potentiality in which human beings can represent the apex of nature's long evolution toward an ever greater consciousness and creativity and freedom, where humanity, again, we have, the, we have this great power to drive the conversation about nature towards uh, making nature better or destroying nature. And we've proven that we can destroy nature. And part of the the agricultural part of the podcast has been about the other side of things, the way we can pragmatically make things better by mimicking the systems that nature has proven to us that work and using our intelligence and our ability to manipulate what's around us to accelerate a lot of those processes. Hell yeah. So like the last two episodes ago, we did the Swales Systems episode. And while in nature, obviously, there's no natural form of cutting in swales, uh, that it doesn't happen, soil builds up as it does. However, because of our understanding of how nature works, we can accelerate that process by feeding the conditions that the soil needs to do what it does best. In doing things like that, we can accelerate the process of making better systems and helping nature evolve more quickly develop more quickly, develop those complex systems more quickly. 
So it's about our role and how we reimagine that role in a complex uh, natural world that we can do good and great things. So, yeah. So yeah. Let's, so let's unpack that. Okay. I feel like out of all the whole, all of the theory that we're talking about, to bring it back down to the human aspect of it in Rojava, I feel like they're trying to take a homogenous or one-dimensional society and not not really break it down into its pieces, but pr- try to present that it's more the the sum of all of its parts are more than the individual pieces. Yeah, it's so holistic. men and women together. Yeah, is like, better than just you know a, a male dominated society. Yeah, it's holistically looking at how ecology, politics, and economy can all kind of inter uh, re- support each other in a complex system. Right. I don't typically bring race into it, but I feel like that's an issue with the United States right now with the division that we have is there's a I don't want to say that there's a homogenous. No, I'm not going to go there. Can't do it. Do it. That's not full. Thought, it's not fully thought out. It's all right. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I mean, if you look at play, like Rojava, for example, there are a lot of different groups that don't like each other that have ended up there because they're marginalized in other places. And that that relationship of marginalized people having challenges with other marginalized people and also having the gender issues that exist really speaks to uh, a very complex understanding of intersectionality where you have all these marginalized people that all have their own issues, their own sense of hierarchy that exists and trying to erase that and educating them about those that intersectionality that exists and how instead of focusing on those differences that they understand the complex nature of economics and politics and how those played into their their uh, station as it's traditionally been in this region that's the message that's missed a lot in the u.s is that's a way better way of what i was going to say so we'll go with that okay i think in the u.s one of the challenges is we do have you know, I look at like the Zoomers and they give me so much hope because there's like the shit that they like. If you watch any of their TikTok videos, which I don't have TikTok, but there's a lot of them that end up on Instagram. The shit that they're like reading and talking about and digesting into like consumable bites is like shit that I read in grad school and they're like fucking 16. So like that gives me a lot of hope that that they're educated. And when they get out in the world and get some life experience, that they're going to do some really great things. But to circle back to this conversation about intersectionality in American politics or American economics or whatever, the fact that there's this framework that's been created by this generation that's coming up, I think points to the fact that that, that re-education is already happening. And the biggest challenge I think that's going to be for the left in the United States and probably most of the Western world is that... We, we do have a problem with uh, woke politics kind of taking over intersectional solidarity movement where we're too focused on outwoking one another and all these different things instead of really digging in and like you again to go back to Rojava where we have this really great movement that's happening and people are getting their hands dirty with making meaningful change instead of symbolic change, which a lot of the theory is. Like, the theory is a great starting point. You know, that's the seed that grows into the tree, but the tree has to live within the conditions that it is growing. Right. And I hope that metaphor works, because I think it did. It hits home, because that's exactly what they're doing in Rojava with their ecological approach. 
they see that they are in a fertile region of a conflicted area and they see that that's their best way to survive and it's also it also makes them a jewel or an oasis in in the desert so to speak so why not you know cultivate that literally and figuratively just like anywhere in the world one of the challenges in rojava is re-educating people about uh, sustainable living and it's not because these people the people in rojava don't understand the needs for sustainable living or having an environmental focus because most places especially along the equator have been most severely impacted by global warming and climate change. So th- this is not something that's totally out of the scope of what they understand. This isn't America, like they actually accept climate change. What's the challenge is it's changing their lifestyle, which is something we've talked about a lot. You know, one of the things that I always like to talk about, and I think is something that we'll continue to talk about, one of the, or one of the challenges I have with permaculture is this focus on foods that people don't eat, like their edible foods and crops and things like that. But if people don't eat the food, it doesn't matter. Like if they don't know how to cook it, that and that's that's the big problem. Like you watch the shit, like these nonprofits that are like, oh, we gave bags of fresh veggies to like these poor communities. I'm like, cool. Do they know how to cook it? Do they have the time to cook it? Like what other resources did you give them for this to be something that works? And like that speaks back to that systemic issue. In Rojava, they're they're challenging the systemic issue in the sense that they are investing so heavily in reeducation and bringing in an international support system of ecologists and biologists and all these other specialists that can come in and help them retool their economy to make it a sustainable long-term project instead of some philosophical battle of who's who's got a purer sense of anarchist theory than the other person. In doing this project to tie ecology into their economic system, they're able to also then transition that conversation to the role of politics and how that plays into that same understanding of how the system relates to one another, specifically the role of direct democracy. So the internationalist commune that wrote this book, Make Rojava Green Again, states that, in quote, democracy is the antithesis to the state. It disassociates itself from it and represents a self-organized regulation of the processes of societal self-coordination. In such a society production of commodities can only take place in the sense of a cooperative, ecological, and decentralized mode of production. Needs are determined based on a democratic process of negotiation and with the awareness of the possibilities of an ecological system and balance between nature and human beings. This means that technologies, modes of production, distribution, and forms of consumption will be decided upon in terms of their impact on the natural environment. End quote. Yeah, so I'd say that's an ecological approach very directly. They understand that the decisions that they make for themselves and for everyone in general will have an impact on their environment. And their environment is something, again, that makes them valuable and also gives them their livelihood. And this all boils back down to that general idea of direct democracy is necessary for there to be uh, ecological sustainability. You can't destroy your own home and people won't let you especially if they have a, a, a meaningful democratic vote versus like a symbolic vote like we have in Massachusetts when we run for president. This libertarian municipalist model allows individuals directly impacted from these decisions to have a meaningful voice in these conversations. And in doing so, they're able to defend their local ecology. And that's something that gets so lost in a lot of these conversations, particularly from state-focused leftists and obviously capitalists, because 
again, this doesn't need to be said again, I guess, but that capitalists can just invest money wherever the best return of income is. And a lot of times that's because those areas have poor protections. They're not fully having to absorb the public costs of the decisions that they make when they destroy those ecologies. So doing this intertwines the successes of nature directly with the individuals who have the authority to not only defend it, but that also intimately know the land and are able to provide a sustainable and positive harmony with nature and humanity. Which gives them, you know, all things working out for the best, that gives them an infinite return on their investment. By having that intimate nature uh, relationship with nature, they're able to better help develop that system and make it more complex. And in doing so, making it more, create creating more abundance. To get into this ecological point, you can't not talk about the role of agriculture. And we talked a little bit about the fact that the, there's a lot of fertile soil in the Rojava region and what that means for those people that live there to create sustainable food systems. So not only does Rojava have all these uh, international problems to deal with and the fact that they don't have much control over their water systems because of Turkey, they also have some other issues because of the last 20 or so years, 20 plus years of massive pesticide use based on the development of monocrops, including pesticides that were banned everywhere else and were dumped into the region. And that's why this this group called the Agricultural Protection Committee was developed, which focuses on sustainable farming methods through diversification and intense water management. Their goal is to make it so that all the wells are registered by the committee and to control all the new wells being drilled, which to them should be zero at the current moment. The committee also decided that it was important to make it so that only 60% of agricultural areas were to be planted with crops that required irrigation to reduce the amount of water needed to sustain their agricultural systems. Lastly, they also focused on some regenerative practices of leaving fields fallow, using cover crops and things like that to allow the soil to regenerate. These practices have both cut wheat production and increased the production of traditional ingredients like lentils, chickpeas, and beans, which may not be as profitable on an international market, but they do allow sustainability to exist within their, let's call them borders. This also helps build the biomass, you know, obviously using these types of legumes builds nitrogen in the soil and is an investment in the future of the property. In doing this, they've also started to incorporate a lot of the agroforestry projects that we've been talking about on the agricultural side of this podcast, where they're focusing on bringing in a lot of regionally appropriate tropical trees, things like citruses, mangoes, as well as other biomass building trees like poplars, which help extract minerals from the soil, but also shade the soil, allowing other annual crops to grow below. So what many people that don't come from an agricultural region might not realize is that if you listen to, I guess, the pasture episode, we talked about C3 versus C4 grasses. And even though C4, those summer grasses, generally cap out at about 100 degrees before they pretty much stop growing, there's a lot of use of shade or using like giant fabric for shades. So in regions like Rojava, where it's excessively hot, for annual crops to grow in the summer, they have to use massive fabric shades. So in planting these trees, they're going to create a natural shading system that doesn't require those inputs and creates more sustainable long-term farming practices. How much you want to bet Andy <clears throat> says silvo pasture in the next five seconds? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like that's the whole point, though, is that they're building these alley systems where they're 
running these trees and creating alley farming systems, whether it's annual crops like wheat or peas or beans or whatever it might be, and that they can ultimately start to incorporate a lot of their traditional livestocks into those systems to create those silvopasture systems. So there you go, Elliot. Congratulations. We haven't really covered this process of alley cropping too heavily. We talked about it very quickly in the key line systems episode, but generally in silvopasture systems, this alley cropping where you're cropping the space between the two rows of trees that are growing and usually aren't big enough to create too much shade so that what's growing in those alleys can grow like as if it was growing in direct sun in a temperate climate, I guess you could say. These trees are usually planted based on their mature size, which is like depending on the tree, about 20, 25, 30 feet, whatever it might be. So those rows are usually about that distance apart, and it takes 20, 25 years for them to get to that full mature size. So for that long time, there's a period usually of about 8 to 10 years where that is treated pretty much like it's, it's like a traditional farm. So these systems, obviously Rojava is a new project, so they're not very developed at this point, and they're still learning. It's really interesting from my perspective as somebody with such a background in agriculture to read what they're doing and to kind of see them learn based on the the input brought in by experts that are going to that region. Seeing them go from, okay, we need to switch from wheat to rotational crops, and then saying, okay, that's not enough. Now let's talk about cover crops. Okay, that's not enough. Let's incorporate agroforestry into the system. Okay, like once that's up and running, now let's start bringing in animals into that system. And all of these things further make the system more complex, more resilient, better able to absorb the harsh weather of the region, and ultimately produce more food for the people that live there in a more sustainable, less risky way because of the fact that they're no longer so heavily impacted by the weather patterns, which obviously are becoming more and more complex because of global warming. And I think that's why we were so excited to talk about this episode, because it's a microcosm of all of the theories and concepts we've been talking about. I guess at this point, we can take time and look back on it, you know, the past 20 years, and then look at it now and see that they have gone piece by piece and started, you know, I guess, breaking the system down, their system down into the smallest building block, and then adding piece by piece and watching it get more complex. And as you said, more resilient and provide for them what they were lacking before. There's that old saying that's like the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the next best time is to plant it today. Right. And unfortunately, they did not have the luxury of having someone plant it 20 years ago. Right. So they're playing catch up. And the idea that we can and I think this is something that gets lost with a lot of leftists is that we can suddenly like snap our fingers and things are going to be better. Even if you have that vision, it takes time. And time doesn't mean a couple years. It usually means decades. And we're like the EZLN is a really great example where that project's been going on for 25 years. And now you're really starting to see the fruits of their labor for those decades of building actually resilient systems, including an education system, including healthcare and all these other things. We're seeing that happen in Rojava as a very similar yet also systemically different because of the multiculturalist aspects of Rojava versus the EZLN project. they, They occupy very different spaces in terms of the challenges that they face. You know, Rojava is on a border of multiple countries that want to invade it, whereas the EZLN, as long as they have a good relationship with the public, the Mexican government really won't step in. And Rojava has operated in a very similar way. And 
incorporating journalists and doing a really great job of PR so that the public understands and they can drive the narrative of what's happening there instead of allowing the state to do that. Like, you know, if we were to talk about like Chaz, the autonomous zone that sprung up during the protests this past year, they never had a chance to, I mean, it was problematic for a couple different reasons. And like, that's like typical leftist is saying like, yeah, it wasn't perfect. So we should ignore it. But it didn't do a good job of dictating its own narrative about what was going on there and what what their goals were and what they were doing for their community because there was a lot of really good projects going on. And Robert Evans just started a new podcast talking about what was going on during the siege in Portland. And he'll be covering some of that stuff, I'm sure, because of course he is. I think those conversations need to be had, but they need to be had while those projects are happening, not after, because that's how you foment support from the general public for these types of projects. Yeah, so we started our own propaganda machine. Yeah, so support us and, um, you know, someday we'll lead the revolution or something. I want my face photoshopped on that Lenin picture of him, like, above the crowd. Like, if I could get that, that'd be pretty cool. We'll get to work on that. Yeah, so obviously being agriculturally focused in this podcast, our, our primary interest in talking about Rojava we're not just the anarchist focus of, of it. I feel like the Rojava project, in terms of its direct democracy, is very similar to the EZLN, and I don't think it's worth really nitpicking the nuances because, again, I think one of the things we talked about with that with the EZLN was that part of what directed their sense of what democracy should look like were the indigenous practices, and some of that plays out in Rojava as well, where... A lot of those traditional practices for local communes and things like that helped drive and also frame up the conversation of what a stateless democracy looked like for people that would say that's too radical. You can use those traditional understandings and constructs to frame that conversation and allow some ownership locally and historically for that sense of what an anarchist quote-unquote state is. And I know some people will say, well, technically Rojava is not an anarchist state because it is a state or it has some kind of governing body. And sure, like, cool. Right. And it's a, it's a pretty simple co- uh, concept. And I don't think it's too wild, but I think the word to describe all of that is accountability. Yeah. I'm not really super interested in getting deep into that conversation because I don't think it's helpful. But I do want to circle back to this agricultural subject because I think it is interesting, at least to me. And chances all right, are... All right, tree hugger, let's go. Yeah. So the Agricultural Committee updated the Internationalist Commune on November 21st of this year, so just a few weeks ago, and they said, in quote, the goal which is included in this year's plan is to produce all vegetables consumed in Rojava nationally, and we are already close to reaching this goal. Further, the Agricultural Committee highlighted their decision-making process, stating that, in quote, the planning process is complex. At the end of the harvesting season in autumn, a three-day-long yearly meeting takes place to evaluate the production and problems of the past year. All agricultural collectives present their reports at this meeting. On this base, the production for the coming year is planned. The yearly earth plan states how much of which crop shall be produced in the coming year. It considers the needs of the people and the needs of the soil so that the soil can recover and is not depleted of nutrients. The small-scale peasants, as well as cooperatives and industrial facilities, make their plans for the coming year, which are coordinated in the final economic plan for the year. I think this, to talk about like the, the logistics of what this looks like, and again, I think this reflects the, the role of 
direct democracy in all economic sectors, which we don't have at all in the United States, is that for the farmland, 97% of it is owned by farmers, and only three are owned by the committee. And that that 3% that's owned by the committee is primarily uh, for seed storage, test crops, and all of their research that they're doing for different projects. So I think it's interesting that there's zero private enterprise ownership within the region. I think it speaks to the fact that they have successfully created a system that erases the role of, I guess, capitalism. Right. Somebody can't come in and throw money at it and say, I like your idea. I want to do it for profit. They're just like, no, we got this. Yeah, and it's cool because they've actually sustainably created a system where the farmers have direct ownership and the ability to defend their land as they see fit and to grow on their land as they see fit based on the conditions of that piece of land. Right. So very similar to the EZLN. These centers really operate as a space of um, exchange and discussion of information, opinions, the needs of the peasants, and the self-administration to educate the peasants and to change their mentality. For example, the self-administration made the decision to forbid the peasants to burn their lands after harvesting. But this decision alone isn't enough. They also had to educate the peasants and explain to them why this practice was damaging. This points to that re-education component that exists. The the idea of top-down education where there's like these handful of specialists that show up and say you're doing everything wrong right. is really problematic because nobody wants to be... Like how many well, meetings have you been It's the in? difference between authority and the actual education yeah. though. Yeah. Rather than somebody coming down and saying like no or don't do that, not explaining why. They're saying you know, you shouldn't do this and it's in your best interest that you don't and here's the reasons why. And we'll show you why because we're working this land too on our our 3% of the crop. We're going to show you we didn't burn this area and look at how much better it is. Right. And we didn't, you know, put in these inputs that we needed to because we burned the land. Like you said, the the lack of authority in that education process is so important and is why they're able to make meaningful change in people that have probably been farming that way for 50, 60 years. The agricultural committees don't just run this site and also talk about or um, do these education projects and seed store and all these different things. They also um, operate in a very collectivist management role in that they collect information about what the peasants need in terms of tractors and supplies and tools and uh, how much water they're using and all these different things to help take away ownership of those things so that people get them as they need them. So like, think of it like a library for equipment needed for a farm. Instead of everyone owning their own tractor when everyone only needs it for 10 hours or 12 hours, there is a publicly owned ones that then can be used throughout the year as they're needed. Right. So that would consolidate costs. It's taking the tractor and using it for its purpose rather than making a commodity so that everybody needs their own tractor. Absolutely. That simplifies the system so that it can be more complex because everybody has their own farm that they're working. And they're not spending massive amounts of capital and equipment they only need marginally. And ultimately benefits everyone because you're you're creating less waste in terms of tractors that need to be serviced, tractors that need to be made and eventually disposed of. Instead of 100 farmers having 100 tractors, the committee might own 10, but those are utilized to their full extent instead of sitting someplace and slowly rusting away. This speaks a lot to this idea of communal good over a, an individual need to own shit. 
let's say. Yeah, it's it's collective for sure. Not only has Rojava focused on these agroforestry projects and regenerative farming processes, they've also heavily invested in reforestation projects across the various cantons, which are the regions. More trees. Yeah. And they've also um, banned fishing and hunting in these nature reserves to allow nature to kind of take uh, take ownership of itself again because they've been severely utilized by the population because of food shortages and things like that. Besides, you also have a lot of problems because of the water management issues because of Turkey and the fact that climate change has caused massive droughts over the last 15 years or so. And we're going to talk about those droughts a bit in the next episode on Syria and their civil war. So we'll, we'll dig in a little deeper on that. The impacts of climate change on this region. Still haven't built that damn AK. <clears throat> yeah, step it up, Elliot. So like everything, um, there's the domino effect. And one of the challenges is that the dominoes have been falling for quite a while in this region. You've got this massive monoculture challenge, the deforestation of the region for short-term gain, uh, the pollution that's been dumped into the regions. And now you've got the, the water issue, both because of a severe drought and oversimplification of agriculture that has relied heavily on wells. And you also have these rivers drying up because there's no rain and they're being cut off because of the dams in Turkey. So there, there's a lot of issues that uh, are creating complexities and trying to keep these systems afloat, essentially, despite all of their efforts. So one of the main reasons why they focused on reforestation and reducing the amount of water used in their crops isn't just to make those systems, make, for example, the crop systems more profitable, or just because trees are obviously good for a lot of reasons, but because of the fact that their aquifers have been drained significantly over the past decade, and that's been a huge challenge. So over the past decade, one of the challenges that has taken place in this region is that aquifers that had been roughly 100 feet deep to drill for water are now reaching depths of about 250 feet. So massive amounts of water have been used up in the soil, and it'll take decades to fill those back up. Reforestation can help slow the water running into the ground and ultimately help build those aquifers back up for long-term sustainability. Uh, instead of water runoff, something that we've talked about a lot on the agricultural part of the podcast is how runoff can deplete nutrients and also destroy water regions. So like riparian zones, which are the regions of uh, land next to the water, uh, in particular get destroyed by these processes. And their goal with these reforestation, particularly around late major lakes and various rivers, is to help clean the water after decades of degradation and also to make the region more resilient to the impacts of those international players that keep trying to fuck the area over, essentially. So we were talking about runoff, and uh, Rojava has come up with a solution for it that seems pretty simple and doable. But the treatment of wastewater into gray water can be used in agriculture uh, while also cleaning its rivers. Black water, that is... So what's gray water? So gray water is like water that has been used but not does not have like yeah bio waste like in it yet yeah um it can have like food bits and particles and stuff in it and like laundry like when you wash your clothes and stuff in the washing machine that's gray water coming out or shower water right. or whatever right they have an interest in using gray water for agriculture right <laughs> yes they've also looked into black water which i don't think is something that people hear of except for 
the uh, military industrial complex. Which is a great name for it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because they're a bunch of piece of shits. Floating in water. Yeah. So yeah, Blackwater is exactly that. It's literally the waste of humanity. And this is something that I guess gets really popular in permaculture is this idea of using humanure, as they call it, um, which people get grossed out about. If you have a septic system and you live in the sticks, people will say you can't plant your garden above your septic system. And there is some basis to that because of all the chemicals we eat. And that's pretty frightening. But they, they've been working on this idea of using black water to create their own fertilizer to use on their property. And we're actually going to be doing a Patreon prologue about back in the day when places like London would literally ship their shit back to the farms. So I think a wise man once said, uh, I think it was Ben Franklin, his fat, bald ass, waste not, want not. Throw your shit on your food and grow more food. It's a circle of life. Lion King. Let's edit that in. Yeah. Get a, get a little Rafiki moment going. <laughs> That's a surefire way to get sued by Disney. I'm down. Uh, they can have half of nothing. It's nothing. Half of my debt. Yeah, half of nothing is nothing. So, yeah. It's a pretty cool concept. It's something that really hasn't been applied on large scales, except for in China and Sweden, at least as far as I'm aware of. I couldn't find any good examples of it being used, but it, it's a sound practice in theory. So you mean the Swedish people finally got food that has flavor? Wow. That's rude. I mean, I'm not Swedish, so it's, I don't give a shit. It's bland or just salty. That's that's <clears throat> all they got. It's mostly meat and weird berries. Swedish food? Yeah. All I can think of is Ikea food. I don't know. I'll have to talk to my Swedish friend. Who has a Swedish friend? I do. Several. That are just like your Swedish friend? Yeah. I smoke a lot of weed, man. And they do too. Meet a lot of people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So this idea of black water is um, it's pretty interesting. And I think it speaks to the fact that they're, it's, it's a cool idea. And I'm super psyched that they're working on these different projects. And obviously, they're taking a while to get online. But they uh, highlight a vision of the future that's realistically sustainable without being, I guess, focused on aesthetics. There's probably more to it than just poop and water. I'm sure it's treated in some way before they, you know, use it on their crops. Yeah, it's not like they're just, like, scooping shit out of your toilet and right. throwing it on a fucking right. head of lettuce. This, this, the, the black water is being processed uh, before it's going on onto the crops. Yeah. So, but this, I guess, speaking of shit, this circles back to, I think, one of the biggest gotcha areas for the Rojava movement, uh, which is focused on the fact that a large portion of their economic security comes from petroleum extraction and processing. It would seem really against its, its eco-focused foundations to be drilling and extracting oil, but their possession of the oil funds largely is what protects the region. They're utilizing what they have available. And um, the the byproduct of the oil extraction, the natural gas, actually makes up about 25% of their electricity supply. So they are utilizing it as much as they can and not letting any of it burn off like a lot of American oil producers do because it's cheaper to burn it off than to try to build the right facilities to store it and resell it. Currently, they also receive about 75% of their electricity from hydroelectric dams which sit on the same rivers the Turkish government is currently fucking with. There's a couple problems with this, and part of why they continue to drill oil is that these hydroelectric dams don't 
they don't have the equipment and the parts to maintain them. So it's not a long-term solution to keep these things running. It's just what's been there and what they have. And for the time being, they have to rely on both. And neither of them is sustainable. However, they do have a vision to integrate more green energy and to retool their economy so that they focus less on green energy by um, new building projects. And there's a couple different projects they've been working on, uh, some of which Robert Evans covered in The Women's War. So if you're interested in Rojava, I won't go into too much detail about it because we're already at the hour mark on this. So I will be... Uh, Are we going to do a two-parter? Is this our first two-parter? I think we're probably good. I think we probably... I mean, there's a lot that's going to get cut. But. All right. We'll, we'll <clears throat> ramble on and bore you guys to death with the two-parter later. Yeah. He, uh, he covers a lot of that in there, and there's a lot of incorporation of modern building projects that are also sustainable instead of so one of the things i didn't realize i guess until i until a couple of years ago that our how we build houses in this country like I, i've always known it's like ass backwards yep but when i was visiting some family over there and they were talking i was just talking about construction i didn't realize that things like the fiberglass insulation we use in our houses is like used nowhere else in the world except for maybe canada they, um, like, Europe uses, like, wood sh- uh, shavings and shit like that, which never even occurred to me. So we, we have a very skewed understanding of what sustainable building is. And they, they focus heavily on those types of projects. Their long-term plan is to build sustainable homes, develop solar water systems, solar PV systems, and turbine systems that can help develop green energy and reduce their need for oil and ultimately stop drilling and extracting oil in a, as quick of a process as I guess they probably could. To, again, one of the things we talked about the EZLN is that the conditions that they were living in were so... We'll could, say not limited, but... I mean, most of, the, most of the region didn't have electricity. Right. So, like, they were very much living like things hadn't changed in 200 years. Right. Rojava has a different challenge. I guess the system is more that their system is more complex. They do have more inputs, more resources to. Well, no, no, you know what? So I guess it was. So one of the things that they've been working on is uh, building recycling systems. So despite the fact that they are, again, we we talked about the fact that this is not necessarily a region that was like a, a third world country fifty, sixty years ago, but they still haven't invested in things that we consider first world technologies for green development. So they don't have like paper recycling facilities and they're in the process of developing those and developing hard plastic recycling facilities to make what they're doing more resilient. The The end goal is that the communes are based on this idea of collective self-sufficiency. This eliminates the separation between the places of production and its use, reduces the long transport routes for these materials that are being used and guarantees security of supply to the people in a region where food scarcity, power scarcity, and uh, access to water are uh, easily available. So I think this points to this idea of the the relocalization of things. So the communes are based on collective self-sufficiency. This eliminates the separation between the places of production and use, uh, reduces long transport routes, and guarantee security of supply to the people. Also, it helps the growth and retention of collective knowledge about agriculture, treatment, and harvests. Rojavan system builds on community self-government in communes and production in cooperatives. It's intended that all resources such as water, energy, and land become common goods. 
An essential part of the ecological strategy of the self-administration in Rojava is the development of tree nurseries. Most existing nurseries in northern Syria, more trees, are owned by private companies, making planting trees an expensive affair for many. To help solve this problem, we started the construction of a nursery on the grounds of the Internationalist Academy. And in 2018 alone, more than 50,000 shoots were planted and raised on an area of 5,000 square meters. The focus is on fruit trees with special emphasis given to plants that are tolerant of arid conditions such as olive and oak. This kind of goes back to the agricultural focus of the project or ecological and agricultural focus and how those can be intertwined by did, using... Did you say ecological? Yes. Not ecological? Did you? Did I get you to change it? I think you did. That's awesome. Now I, I can't... Every time I read it, I say it twice because I say it both ways. It's ecological. 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 Whatever. Because it's the, the ecosystem. <laughs> ecosystem. Ecosystem. <laughs> Echo has a, a H in it. A H? Echo has a H in it. Okay. Um... So yeah, we, I mentioned already that this idea of building systems, especially in terms of like agricultural, agroforestry, is you measure time seconds or decades, um, and that you have to wait decades to see those changes that you've made. So this project is really interesting that they're focusing on bringing these things in. And I'll be very curious to see how eventually I'd imagine these systems go from just planting seeds to actually developing their own varieties and cultivars that are specifically designed or grown for their conditions. I don't see how that's not the the future of these types of projects. And I think it's really exciting to see. Right. And one thing that I think is also admirable, just like um, the Zapatistas in the EZLN, is they have the the long-term vision and sight to see what is best for themselves in their region. And they also have the discipline to like, like you said, get started. The best time to plant a tree is today. They didn't wait down the road and say, Oh, we'll plan to do it. They went ahead and did it um, because there's, you know, no time like the present to, to make your future better. Yeah. I think that's fair. It's um, it's overwhelming what they've been um, challenged with and their response has been incredible. There are a lot of people that will say that the project in Rojava isn't real anarchism or that it's it's not as perfect as you might think. And I, I don't think the goal is to expect it to be perfect. I think the goal is to expect that we can live in some sense of harmony with nature while also providing conditions that allow for a first world lifestyle. And I, I don't think that's anything extreme by any means. But I think gets lost a lot in these conversations is that Nature is resilient to the things we do, even if we're not perfect. For if we're able to create these complex systems that help nature, nature is more able to absorb our failures and be able to provide uh, sustenance for all of us while also being able to live um, some sense of a first world lifestyle. It, it requires us rethinking a lot of the things that we take for granted, like ownership of this example that we talked about tractors the 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 means of production as a collectively owned thing instead of an individually owned thing in reality that's something that we'll have to come to terms with with things like automobiles and other technologies that are better utilized if we collectively own them instead of individually right and i think something as simple as having water clean water to 
put on your crops versus not having enough water to do that. Those, those are things that I think we definitely take for granted. Yeah, and, and ta- I, I should take. They're, they're always going to be around, so we should definitely um, pay attention to that whole process because water water desalination, the process of turning black water into useful water to use on crops are very important uh, processes. I think that we'll see more of in the future. I want to circle this back to Bookchin a little bit, Marie. So, yeah. So the the work we had talked about last episode uh, was focused on this idea of both recreating these complex systems by using our human nature to accelerate good things that nature does and use our incredible capacity to see uh, long-term planning and understand the, the, the chemical and biological interactions that happen to create these systems and use that knowledge and ability and foresight to create better and more resilient, more productive systems um, that can produce more for us and make us more sustainable. I think in that sense, they're really meeting the goals of what Murray Bookchin had. And in this redevelopment of their society, they haven't really, at this point at least, integrated uh, that, that liberatory technology but I feel like they're they're um, much further along in that process than someplace like the EZLN because of their uh, access to different resources and their I guess their natural urbanization because of the way those regions have developed compared mm-hmm. to the Chiapas. But that that could also just be the perspective that I have. I guess uh, I'm not going to say that I'm a, an expert by any means on Rojava or the the Middle East. But my my point I guess is that and when we look at things like how Bookchin presents his understanding of what an ideal system is, that it's dependent on the conditions of that region where they're trying to apply that type of theory and what those conditions allow and don't allow and where they are in that process of redeveloping their ecology. Right, i.e. their environment and nature, right. Yeah, and also, their, I guess, their access to things like technology. Um, That liberatory technology. Yeah, so... This region, I mean, has been destroyed numerous times, and I don't think there's a big manufacturing center uh, in those regions, at least not yet. But that doesn't mean they can't develop it and how they develop it in accordance with those ecologically focused views of what technology's role is in a community and the role of the manufacturing center within the ecology of the region. I, I think will will frame up a really interesting opportunity for us as a species to see what can be done assuming the project continues to grow and expand that's going to be interesting to look at we might have to do another episode in a couple 10 years or so yeah we'll definitely be doing this in 10 years why not or like i don't know living in the woods one of the two our farms will finally be touching we'll be we'll have a budding farms yeah let's take this bitch over yeah one one step at a time honey get my shotgun to go back to Ajalon, who is kind of the, the driving force of this project, uh, he said that, in quote, there's no ecology when there's war, end quote. This speaks to the fact that, much like there's no democracy in war, that all these different considerations are blown to the side, generally in these various historical challenges. When war is going on, it's hard to care about the long-term effects of the environment. When there's war, it's hard to say that democracy is a priority just look at the way military structures are developed across the globe. Rojava has proven that doesn't have to be the case, that they can refocus democracy and ecology within that condition of war. While the ecology is a focus of their entire 
uh, agricultural project and their reurbanization or redevelopment of urban spaces, they also refocus democracy within their uh, ranks. And we really didn't cover it, and I, I don't think we have time to. But when when you look at like the the military. There's no actual uh, hierarchy within the military, but appointed leaders from that are democratically chosen by their peers to lead different missions and projects. So I think that speaks to the fact that not only have they proven themselves as some of the best fighters in the world, despite limited access to equipment and training, that they're able to do that while tossing aside the conventional models of what military projects and practices are by uh, decentralizing their sense of commandership. Right. So, again, it's a collective mm-hmm. approach. They do this while, again, standing as a united front against both imperialist and fascist and theocratic attacks. So this is something I think that can... Uh, the, the biggest thing about Rojava, in my opinion, is that they've created a project that it can be a model for so many places around the world. And I think back to when we were talking about Subcomandante Marcos and his essay about the pieces of the world and how they'll never fit together. And that the summary essentially was that Chiapas should exist as a model of what can be done. And there should be Chiapas or different communities like Chiapas around the globe. That was his vision is that these uh, local indigenous areas are allowed to create the conditions that they deem fit for their people. Mm -hmm. uh, And that should be strictly democratic, both economically and politically. And Rojava is kind of, is the, the fruition of that vision. Also, not only is it the fruition of that vision, but it's also the diametric opposite for the conditions that required it or allowed it to thrive and flourish. And that they exist in what should be the most impossible place on earth to stand as a, a small, democratically run yes autonomous zone that doesn't require any sense of state right and i guess that ak helps that's yeah. why I, that's why i wanted to build one yeah guns help so uh, i guess to kind of tie this up it's the natural effort for us to try to envision a democratic society as being by proxy peaceful that if there's a sense of direct democracy both economically and politically those skills don't need to exist because everyone does have a equal say in authority in their community. But that doesn't erase the fact that there is legitimate war to wage as they are right now against ISIS and Turkey and Syria and all the other players that are involved in proxy wars in the Rojava region. And to quote, what is Aleppo? Yeah. <laughs> Ask Gary Johnson. I just had to say it. Yeah. So, I'm going to pull a quote again from Ajalon that I think is really important and that he says, the war waged on us by capitalist modernity is as much of a psychological, emotional war as a physical one. So let's not lose our morale and strongly affirm, yes, our struggle is ecological for it is the ecological people's war. It's the revolutionary people's war, end quote. So that's kind of highlights, I guess, the imperative nature of integrating the ecology into these conversations about what it means to uh, develop liberatory frameworks for a truly autonomous society in which people ultimately self-determine their future. Yeah, and I think that's one of the main points that we drive home with all of this is that, and I guess that's what's starting to turn me into an anarchist, is you don't need 
a structured hierarchy to tell you all of these things that you need. You can determine it for yourself and, and get it done, you know, obviously with the help of others. But that's what makes that's what makes it a community and that's what makes it it all work. Yeah, and that goes back to, I think, the first episode and why that was so important to have it as the first episode of this miniseries was on the urban space because the big point of the urban space that um, that Catherine Tumber makes is that urban spaces can only grow to a certain size before democracy is lost. Without that democratic rule, we see exactly what happens in capitalism, that accumulation of power and wealth, uh, and that they're coinc- they exist together and democracy cannot exist in a capitalist state because it requires that uh, alienation factor that exists where the worker is no longer associated with the labor that they do, the environment that they work within, and the capitalist isn't tied or have to live with the effects of those decisions. Oh, you mean your vote becomes a commodity? Yes. Weird. Yeah. That's weird. It sounds broken. Yeah. I don't know what's going Mm. on. How does this keep happening in all of these countries coincidentally? that value capital over everything else. But yeah, so Rojava has provided a framework and hopefully you guys thought this was interesting because I every time I see some podcast that talks about Rojava, I listen to it and I, it's always something that's been a big curiosity of mine because I think like a lot of people that have read about it or listened about it, it's it's one of those things that it's hard to not only imagine, but you wonder how filtered that that vision of it is and that's why robert evans series the women's war is really great because he actually goes there and interviews a bunch of people highly 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 recommend it it's a very short mini series check it out because it's very cool and obviously robert evans does a lot of great work so you shouldn't expect anything less the point here is that i don't think i've really heard a lot of stuff in terms of how they're developing that ecological part of the of their economy in any of those conversations, there's always a talk about how they're they're centering their economy on ecology, but what that actually looks like is always kind of not for discussion, probably because most people don't care what that looks like, whereas that's kind of the, the that's point the whole of a, point we're talking. Yeah. That's the whole reason we're talking about it. Yeah, that's that's why we're here. We want to so. see what this shit looks like. I can read about mm-hmm. it all day on a screen and turn pages in a book, but I want to see what it looks like for myself. And I, I eventually would like to do it for myself because I understand that it's important. And I think that's why we started this podcast is because other people understand it's important. But also, you know, just like myself, sometimes need the motivation to see that it can be done in order to do it. Like the goddamn four minute mile. Not happening. I'm not doing that. But I'm just saying that's an example of, you know, being motivated to do something. You see the change. And then you you want to do the change. I want to do the change. For people that are like, yeah, I get that. And you can say ecology is the focus of a project or a region or something. Uh, I think in at least in this country, we've been pretty um, disenfranchised by the idea that we're going to do all these great things. We've developed these massive recycling projects. And then guess what happens? 97% of it gets burned in fucking various incinerators. And you're like, why am I even doing this? And uh, I don't see how it's possible to stay confident that when you hear about things that are ecologically focused that they're actually doing the things that they say they do um for to see in rojava and to dig into some of the the details of what their day-to-day farming practices look like if you have an understanding of what what uh, of how these things work i think we're able to better understand whether or not those are actually regenerative ecologically sound practices and 
I think it's really cool to see a state-oriented focus. Well, I say state, but I get it. They don't technically have a state, but the the agricultural you say autonomous. Yes, the the regionals agricultural committees focus on ecological practices that are founded in science and founded in a long-term sustainability. Because it would be very easy for them to talk about doing things like growing microgreens and all these other bullshit things that are like. I guess slightly better for the environment, but not like a really long-term solution. Cover crops are a good starting point, but the fact that they're starting to focus on those tree crops really speaks to the fact that they're not thinking about this year's solution or a a greenwashing of monocultures, but actually thinking about those long-term solutions that are dynamic and reflective of the natural systems around us. Elliot's shaking his head at me. I agree. Thank you. Great uh, point, Andy. Yeah, thank you. I love the support. It's fantastic. Honestly, I was just thinking about the next episode already about Syria and, and digging deep into... Did we cover everything here? I think so. I think we, we covered everything here. Yeah. Um, we could go into more detail, trust us, but we're not going to. Yeah, to l- learn more about Rojava in the region. It, 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 if you find this episode fascinating, I'm sure you could find more fascinating tidbits about it. But um, I'm really glad we did this one. Yeah, and the the book we primarily referenced uh, is from the International Commune of Rojava. Collectively wrote the book, Make Rojava Green Again. So Debbie Bookchin, the, who wrote the foreword for the book, is Murray Bookchin's daughter, which I think is really interesting. And obviously, she's got some interesting takes on what's happening and how she her father would have been so proud of seeing what's happening there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, check it out. It's a fun fact, actually. Debbie Bookchin was also a former press secretary for Bernie Sanders. Oh, would you look at that? Not to say that he might secretly be an anarchist, but maybe. Maybe. Subliminal? She was subliminally doing it? Maybe all those memes about Bernie leading the revolution actually turn into reality. I feel like I could see him with a scythe. I still need that AK. I I just, I don't know. Bernie will, it would be federally mandated. Everyone has an AK. Yeah. (laughs) Build your own, yay! Um, yeah, so the next two episodes, we're going to cover... At this point, I think we've covered a good understanding of kind of the development of anarchist theory and its application. And now our, our fo- we're going to refocus that conversation to what leads to that point. So we, the whole focus of the podcast has been, at some point in our history, like every country's history on Earth, there's been collapse. And conflict, conflict, whatever. We're in a unique point right now in history because not only do we have, we're in a country that's in a state of decline. I don't think that's really up for debate, but there's three prongs to it. There, well, there's a lot of prongs to it, but uh, you've got first a state of decline, you've got second a state of economic decline that's interwebbed globally, talking about global capitalism, and then thirdly, You've got uh, an ecological crisis from climate change. And like then you could talk about nuclear uh, weapons and all these other things that further complicate and obfuscate a lot of these conversations. But that, that kind of that three-pronged issue has really created a unique condition for what collapse will look like in the future. And while we don't have a direct model for what that might look like, there are some pretty good examples of like kind of a best case, worst case scenario. And that's kind of where we're going to go next. So we're going to be doing two episodes, one on the Syrian civil war, and we'll be talking about the history that led up to it, what what mirrors what we're seeing here, 
and kind of using that as a microcosm of what we could see in this country. And then we're going to follow that up with a um, better case scenario where we're going to look at the uh, Irish Civil War and what that has looked like over the past uh, number of decades and how that could provide us with a framework of what we might be looking at in the future. Yeah, that shit sounds dark. That shit sounds very dark. And I am probably going to be um, drinking, doing the research for that. And you should probably drink when you listen to the episode because it's yeah. going to be some heavy shit. It'll be really interesting to talk about these things and then kind of bring that framework home and see, again, how those types of models of what civil war looks like would play out someplace like the United States. So this will be kind of similar to like an it could happen here with a little bit of a, a different framework of how those things happen and then how we can resiliently build uh, within that framework and um, tying in a lot of the agricultural functions that we've talked about and using the models that we've seen in different places like Rojava and the EZLN. So yeah, if if you're a Patreon uh, subscriber, uh, after this comes out on Sunday night, the following day or two, we'll probably be releasing our prologue number nine on the radical idea of public fruit. So hopefully you guys enjoy that because it's a very cool story. Fucking punk fruit. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed it. See you, pros. Bye.